0: Welcome to Coffee House. This is Hostages No More by Betsy DeVos. Part 2. We are on an education binge. And there's one funny thing. I have been seeing a lot of complaints from teachers online. You know, we're in anticipation of the school year returning. And apparently a lot of teachers are quitting. And there are a lot of shortfalls. You know, just like police. There are a lot of shortfalls for teachers. And the thing is, teachers vote overwhelmingly Democrat. The teachers' unions give about 95% or better. Their contributions go to Democrats. They have this uh, little kind of money laundering scheme wherein the union donates a ton of money to Democrats. They endorse Democrats, get their members to vote for them. The Democrats win and then give money back to the unions that then gets donated back to them. It's, It's a very suspect process. But as always, this being part two, you should know this, how this works by now. But we will go through the contents. We're going to talk about the, uh, an analysis of the quality of the book a little bit. Obviously, it's better to do that at the end. But then uh, some big picture stuff that comes from this particular episode related to this book. And of course, Betsy DeVos was the education secretary under President Trump. And this particular chapter is titled, There's Nothing Civil About Civil Rights. So, And it opens up with the discussion of the trial with Joseph. Joseph was a student at a university. He was accused by two anonymous women of having engaged in some kind of an assault. The administration did not talk to him first, and he, was, he went through this kafka experience of being accused and punished without any recourse. And what had happened was, under Title IX, Obama had sent this letter out to the universities and other educational institutions that said that this is how you have to interpret Title IX. And it vastly broadened what conduct constituted sexual harassment, way beyond than that what is qualifying conduct under the actual Legal precedent. It lowered the bar for conviction when it came to that conduct. It made it only, you only have to prove more likely than not, so that's 50% plus one, as opposed to other standards of evidence, you know, like clear and convincing or beyond a reasonable doubt. The administration would publish a list of schools that were not following this process, and the people who were accused got very little or no notice of the accusations. They weren't given the opportunity to use an attorney. And the same person who would make the procedural determinations would act as jury as well. So you had the same person being the judge and the jury. There's another instance where this uh, girl and her boyfriend were wrestling in the lawn at one of these universities and were just seen as doing this. The girl herself said it was fine, there was nothing going on, but she was told that she was going through battered woman syndrome, and they expelled the boyfriend. You know, no recourse again on that. There's another one, this is utterly ridiculous, and I looked up the news story to verify this, but this was, um, there was a student, a male student, who was taking a test, and on the test it had this prompt that said, "Uh, do you remember the name of, like, the administrative person, you know, your instructor for this particular part? And if you don't, make up something. So he put a generic name, Sarah Jackson was the name, that he put on the paper, and he received the test back and got a zero on it, and it was called Inappropriate Sexual Harassment. And it turned out that Sarah Jackson was the name of some lingerie and nude model. So the reviewer of the test determined that he had engaged under the auspices of Title IX, the expanded idea of Title IX, had engaged in sexual misconduct. So when, these th- when all this sh- shook out, uh, by the time uh, it got appealed and went to an actual court, half of these things got overturned and a bunch more settled outside of you know the court process. So these were extreme abuses of the Title IX process. That were being enacted in universities and on educational institutions uh, across the country. DeVos mentions here Trump's uh, boasting on that one leaked conversation he was having with whatever TV personality. when He said, grab him by the shoulder and show them some affection. (laughs) And she characterizes it as Trump has boasted of sexual misconduct. Now, I'm not a Trumpologist. I think the guy is, he's hilarious, for one. He had the best policies in my lifetime, for sure. But he's also an adulterer. He's not a good role model. He's not a very good, uh, we'll say, erudite speaker. I don't think that he has traversed the same academic undertaking that I have. Very different people, we'll say. But this is a, a mischaracterization, and it has been. And this is one of the things that annoys me the most about everybody who talks about Trump. Obviously, the thing that he's saying, the thing that he's boasting, logically, is that it's acceptable. That the, the women that he's doing this to consent, impliedly, because he's so amazing, he's so incredible. He's the billionaire, so he can do that to those, those people. It's gross, not good, but it's also not boasting of doing this as an assault. Uh, That's the whole point, is that he's so amazing and impressive as the golden-haired billionaire that he is, that he can just do that and women will accept it and be thankful for it. So you'll see some of the these characterizations that kind of come from the left and anti-Trump Republicans. You'll see these come through in the book a few times as you go through. And it could have something to do with the fact that, you know, she has a obviously a religious background and religious upbringing. That's important to her. So it would make sense to have just a general aversion to these kinds of surface level gross or negative things. But still it's something people have to be honest about these things, especially when you're trying to fight people who are wantonly dishonest about Everything. So there's this rule that they're getting into place to try to rescind this letter, this particular letter, that was issued by Obama. And it took two and a half years to complete. Remember, that's out of four years that they're they working on this. So two and a half years. They hand wrote a bunch of the edits on it. Um, it went back and forth between a bunch of people. It received 124,000 comments. But eventually it instituted new regulations related to the interpretation of Title IX. And it had things like innocent until proven guilty. It's not the same for the judge and the jury. You could either use clear and convincing evidence or preponderance of the evidence as your legal standard. But, and this is the brilliant part, it had to be the same for faculty. So whatever standard you use for determining whether student committed misconduct had to be the same for faculty. And a lot of the faculty had union agreements that explicitly said that this is the standard that you have to use because it's trying to protect the faculty's position. And it, used the, it instituted the court standard of harassment, so the actual jurisprudential standard of sexual harassment was instituted instead of this ridiculously broad one, like putting a name that happens to be the name of somebody who's a lingerie model uh, constitutes sexual harassment. So all those, I mean, those are excellent. Uh, that's a, a major achievement of the administration right there there's, a, here's another one that goes a little awry. She talks about disparity in class discipline based on race. So certain races are disciplined more often than other races. And says that that's something that desperately needs to be addressed. So she's acknowledging that this is a problem. It's not automatically a problem. Disparity does not equal discrimination. You have to control for a million different things to be able to determine whether it's a matter of the racism. And eventually she gets to a, a good realization related to this. But what had happened was because there's this disparity of the discipline in the classrooms, Obama had issued this uh, PROMISE letter, all capital letters. I forget what the acronym stands for, but it's PROMISE, capital letters. And so what what would happen is that a lot of the students who engage in violence, you can't incorporate police and other kinds of security measures. Uh, You can't get rid of students as easily. There are a whole bunch of things that got in the way of being able to do those things. It was a kind of coddling to students that are engaging in violence. You had to send them to other schools first, as opposed to, you know, just banning them for the system or something like that. So it demanded restorative justice. And this is a term that has a a lot of inputs into it, but part of it is just that it's a more coddling approach to violent students. Then you had schools that had to count by race how many people were being disciplined and fix that by some means. And even if if they had a rule, but it had a disparate impact down the line, it wasn't written to be discriminatory, but it had a disparate impact. Ultimately, then the the schools had to get rid of that rule or change it in some way or overly punish one particular uh, race to make up for the numbers. It encouraged schools to just manipulate statistics, try to uh, fit this thing because they don't have control over who's acting out in class. So the realization is that what they're saying, essentially, by suggesting this, is that all of these teachers that are working at these schools are a bunch of racists, and they're engaging in this racism, and the federal government has to step in and intervene so that all these racist teachers aren't doing this anymore. But the Parkland shooter was part of the Promise program, had a long history of violence, he was expelled from the school eventually after this whole process, and returned and shot it up. So Sessions uh, just wanted to rescind the letter again. We saw this in the last one, too, where Sessions just wanted to do something quick, rip off the Band-Aid, but... DeVos wanted to take the time to explain it to the public and get them to understand what was going on so that they supported it by the time that it was happening. Because when she went and talked to a lot of teachers, a lot of the teachers said that the restorative justice just didn't work. It was a bad idea. It was taking tools away from the teachers to be able to manage their classrooms and administrators from being able to keep their schools safe. In every one of these situations, and she says this in the book, in every situation where you end up with a school shooter, there were warning signs for years ahead of time that people picked up on and were aware of. You know, one of the, one of the memes that you see after one of these things happens is you'll see that meme that says, say the thing, say the thing. It's the Bart Simpson one. And it'll say, uh, he was known by law enforcement. That's just the, the common thread through all this, all this stuff. So the next section is about the higher ed highway. And it's about higher education and the pitfalls that we've stumbled into here. So the elites denigrate physical labor. We have more students than ever. We have things like loan forgiveness that's promised on the other side. And you have more loans that are feeding into this. And you end up in this debt trap. So the cost of college grew eight times faster than wages did over the same time period. She wants to be very clear that it's not the same as saying people should be prevented from college. She's just pointing out, you know, the economics of it. And one thing that Trump was apparently an advocate for early on was things like trade schools. And he, was, he suggested that there are many more ways to be successful than simply going to a regular four-year college, you know, or getting a grad degree afterwards. Things like apprenticeships. And there's this Valencia school, I think, that had a real-world job focus. It was about the real world. And I've seen a lot of people calling for, this is uh, separately, calling for more practical education within the education system, which is great. You know, you should learn about taxes. You should learn about balancing a checkbook. All the things that you're going to have to deal with, you know, on a regular basis as an adult, you should learn about those things. Uh, But that is not to denigrate all the other things that seem like dead ideas that people don't really need. Those things are actually very important when it comes to understanding the complexity of the world and creating a brain that's able to function amidst a lot of peaks and valleys, you know, that aren't all uniform. So we don't see things so black and white. And that's the thing that people miss, you know, you read Shakespeare not because you're going to be able to you're going to be in a situation where somebody is holding a gun to your head and says recite a soliloquy from Macbeth or I'm going to shoot you. You read Shakespeare because it does expand your understanding of ideas about relationships and about what history was like and about how people think about the human situation, people being in different circumstances that they have to work their ways out of, and broader understandings about existentialism and romance and all sorts of other things. All those kinds of things you get from that while you're reading some of the most gorgeous and luscious language that has ever been produced. And that really impacts your thinking long term, and you can see. I know, I just, I was on this binge because I was feeling uh, rather downtrodden for a number of reasons. But so I was on this binge of just watching people play one of my favorite games, you know, from history. And I know the moments in the games and want to see how other people will respond. And you can just tell different people, you don't know anything else about them, but just by the way they speak, the kinds of things they say, you can tell what kinds of things they've been doing for the last, you know, 20 years of their life. Just how dull or insipid, boring, self-focused kinds of things things that people say versus the other people who have references to all sorts of other things and don't talk about themselves very often or when they do it's it's a means of illustrating you know some kind of analogy or something like that and they have a much broader vocabulary, and uh, they think about things in a more nuanced, complex way. And y- you just have to realize that those those people, those <laughs> relative people, they really have an impact on whatever they end up in. If you have millions of one versus millions of the other, and those numbers fluctuate, it's going to impact your society dramatically, whatever role they end up in. So it's it's really important stuff. Anyway, so <laughs> where was I? What was I talking about? Oh, yes, this is very important. So the Fed entered education under the guise of helping. In 2010, the federal government became the only federal loan provider. The department became the second largest debt holder. There are $1.6 trillion in student debt. And then they introduced things like income-based repayment. So what happened was that you you ended up getting people who borrowed a lot more because they were encouraged to because they had easier ways of paying it back. And then they ended up paying a lot less on the other side. So you had borrowers just flock to these programs and get this money. So instead of making money every year for taxpayers, which is what the education system used to do, it was costing taxpayers $31 billion a year and just uh, likely to get worse because costs are going up as well, the expense of education. And I believe that's 31 billion a year. (laughs) Some 31 billion something, (laughs) but I have it in my notes. But like I said, income based repayment, the promise on the other side of student loan forgiveness under various circumstances, all those things encourage students to take out more debt and they realize they won't have to pay as much on the other side, which is making taxpayers less money. Free college is bad policy. Very important axiom here, that which government funds, government takes over. So when the government introduces funds, it's not, a, not out of largess. Remember, they're getting this money from all of us, from taxes. But whatever they fund, they take over. They get to start adding conditions, or they get to start manipulating that system. The loans are actually issued by American taxpayers, and it ends up being a transfer to the rich. So it's taken from everybody, everybody who pays taxes, it's taken from. And then that money is borrowed by people who are disproportionately higher-end, higher-income earners, because they're going to college, they end up graduating from college, the more that they take out, the more likely they're, they're doing a graduate degree, or a medical degree, or a law degree, or whatever. So they're getting the disproportionate benefit of that thing. And the colleges get to take their cut first. The colleges don't have a dog in the fight afterwards. They get to take their cut and they move on. They don't care if somebody pays on the other end because the government's holding the check there. There's no assessment of what the university has taught or what the value of what they taught is in the actual economy or in the future. And they've got systems, you know, like the credit hour system is designed for adults. It's designed to help the professors, not For students. It goes into whether they get their pension or not. They have to do so many hours to get a pension. That's why it's designed in that way. As opposed to designed in such a way as to ensure the best learning situation. So like there was this uh, Western governor... And I don't know why I put Western governor, <laughs> but they used a mastery system instead of the credit hour system so that you had to determine whether a student had mastered this. They could do it. Some could do it faster. Some could do it slower. But you had to gain mastery. But that demonstrated they had learned something from, you know, their education and the education department attacked these governors and tried to issue a seven hundred and thirteen million dollar fine for engaging in this. Because they're trying to protect the adults in the situation and their interest in the education system, I mean, the government's interest, rather than the students. And ensuring that they were, there was, you know, you were learning something that was worth learning and that it was do- done in an efficient manner. There are donations from foreign countries. I know we read another book that talked about the Chinese influence on a number of the academics in Ivy League schools and how much money is flowing through from China. Uh, There's this one professor, Lieber, or an academic or whatever, who didn't disclose that he got all this funding from China. And, of course, we've got free speech attacks, even on public campuses. You end up with students with stunted growth, and they're trying to shut down lectures and research. You know, research itself ends up being politically based. If you try to research something or your research comes up with numbers, that don't match the political narrative, then you lose out on research dollars that you would otherwise get. Irreversible damage banned from targets. Everybody remember that? We read that on this show. The ACLU used to defend Nazis and now said Schreier, Abigail Schreier, the author of Irreversible Damage, is dangerous, which is one of the most level-headed insights into the whole transgender movement that I've seen. So how do you go from, as an American Civil Liberties Union, how do you go from defending Nazis to not defending a completely level-headed investigation of something that's so important as that? And then the author talks about women's sports and how important it is to protect those and how that relates to Title IX. And if you don't have a definition of women, then you can't. It renders Title IX unenforceable. So one of the important things was to try to protect women's sports. And it's one situation where Princeton, uh, they came out, you know, they did one of these virtue signaling mea culpas that was a, a false one where they say, oh, we're systemically racist. We're coming out to say how systemically racist we are. So then they sent a letter, the Department of Education sent a letter to them saying, okay, well, why don't you explain to us how you're racist so we can, we can issue the proper punishment? And they're like, oh, no, no, never mind. We're not. Don't worry about it. Oh, people are so ridiculous. Anyway, so that's the end of actually this section. This is, it's already, uh, you know, too much content to, to be able to go on. There's uh, another half like this of the rest of the book. So we're going to, this the analysis part. That's the thing, is that the government is a parasitic scheme. It can be symbiotic, but it's currently parasitic. And that's something we all need to realize. And there are some mixed issues, you know, when it comes to Betsy DeVos in general. You know, there's some things you can see the bleed in of the kind of clean aristocratic class who imbibed a lot of the Trump related stuff and some of the other liberal perspectives on, on education and kind of just restating those but it's primarily good. Most of the book is good. Most of it is very important. And I will definitely take those in addition to all the good stuff about education, because it's, it's the most important topic that we, we need to figure out. I know I'm sure I've said that about multiple different topics, but <laughs> I think any other topic I say is the most important is not the most important. This is the most important. It's education, because that's the long scale. That's the longitudinal look at the way that we're functioning and going to grow over time. Big picture wise, we play these political team sports, you know, it's always the political party and we're on a team, it makes it much easier and more digestible for both sides, but it's really not about that right now, it's not about that for the next, you know, centuries worth of development of Elected governments. Right now we have a passive class that is trying to enrich their personal lives. That's what they're focused on. They're mostly passive. They don't spend a lot of time looking into all these things and historically didn't matter much because we had some stop gaps in between here. You could just do your thing, allow the government to do its thing, and you knew it was generally going to be acting in your best interest. You know, even if it skimmed a little bit off here and there, it was generally going to be acting in your best interest. But there's also an active class of Bond villains that are deliberately trying to manipulate the world in particular ways. And when you have a passive class who's disparate, not really working together, versus a collective class that's Bond villains trying to do everything they can to gain more power and effectuate these... Thanos-level plans, you can't keep being passive, and you can't keep fighting each other. You have to start realizing that uh, this is a different kind of conflict than we've seen in world history. Historically, we had people who were more, more motivated by internal moral instincts. We had those things kind of built into us from the beginning. We all have some kind of version of uh, a conscience, you know, Jiminy Cricket, who's chirping there in your ear saying, don't do that, <laughs> do this, you're... But those moral instincts can be socially nullified, you know, when you are told in particular ways that, you know, life is meaningless, uh, that the opposition is Hitler and you don't have any means of of gaining some kind of a narrative or some kind of a a meaning in a different way, then it's easy to fall into those ruts because they've already been dug out by a lot of very cynical, very self-loathing and resentful people. So anyway, we have to move on to the new phase of representative government where we put governments back in their places to understand that they are necessary evil. They are not the all-powerful saviors uh, who are supposed to descend from on high and deliver us from our squalor. Anyway, that's The Last Coffeehouse. So we are definitely doing Frankenstein coming up. I'm going to have some serious things to say about that one. And we've got the other four books in the five, The tranche of Five. But I'm not sure which one's coming right after that. I've already started the Churchill biography, the first part at least. But it's a long one. You know, there's a lot to it. So I'm not sure if I'll be able to get through that one. So Frankenstein should be next after this, unless there are some in-between things that we'll be doing. But we'll see. Whatever the case, I hope all is well. And I will see you on the next one. All right, bye.